Kian. Coming up, uh, subversely today, we're going to be talking with uh, retiring uh, university librarian, interim university librarian. So stay tuned. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Coming up, Subversity with Dan Zhang. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Today, we're going to be interviewing um, an out, uh, outgoing and retiring uh, university librarian, interim university librarian, um, Jerry um, Lowe who has spent his sh- short tenure here at UC Irvine, but a longer tenure in the library world, heading libraries at Berkeley and also at uh, UC San Diego, among other places where he worked. And so let's go to this interview with Jerry Lowell. Um, we're talking with Jerry Lowell, who's the interim university librarian uh, at UC Irvine. And... Uh, Let's start off on a happy note. What drew you to this job? Um, I really didn't have any intentions of uh, coming back to library, Stan. I was um, happily employed as the assistant dean of the School of the Arts and had expected to work there until I was of retirement age. Um, The position became vacant after the retirement of... uh, Sherry Munoff, and I received a call asking if I would submit my credentials. I had indicated that I had concerns about the fact that it was an interim position, um, but after considering it further, I realized that I could work for two years at the library and then retire. Uh, it, library work has been my key uh, professional calling. I started at UC in 1993, and and I looked forward to returning to the fold, so to speak. And uh, I have a width and breadth of um, a senior d- d- leadership skills that I thought would be quite applicable to the yes. UC urban environment. And you had worked, uh, you had headed to research libraries in the UC. This is correct. I was. Um, University Librarian, Director of Libraries at UC San Diego from 93 to 98. And I was University Librarian at Berkeley from 98 to 2000. So you kind of faced the same in this, or maybe similar situation in the sense that you had to cut back there at Berkeley. Especially. Berkeley, I was fortunate in that I arrived just after the new chancellor had come on board, uh, Chancellor Birdall, succeeding Tian. And there had been a very dramatic cutback in the acquisitions budget that had been assessed by Chancellor Tian. And the faculty at Berkeley uh, revolted quite strongly against that. And one of the first things that Chancellor Birdall did was to restore that cut and add five million to the library's budget. So I really came in at um, an opportune time and the only challenge was that uh, the library committee, the faculty library committee was very strong at Berkeley. They were the ones that, uh, that facilitated 
and pushed for the restoration of the mm-hmm. money. And it was a situation then where I earned their trust so that I basically kind of backed them off of the library. They were, they were quite uh, involved in daily operations at that time. Oh, I see. Um, I remember when you first, the first talk you gave here, I said you were a breath of fresh air because it seemed to be going counter to more recent history especially. Uh, of kind of top-down administration and uh, giving very little voice to the people who are the line people, mm-hmm, especially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so how, how did you come up with this idea that you wanted to flatten the structure? Was Had you practiced it somewhere else? Yes. I have been uh, deeply committed to um, extending uh, decision-making out into the organization and have uh, consistently um, espoused that management philosophy oh, since I was at uh, Yale University especially. Um, at Yale, I was the Associate University Librarian and Director of Technical Services and oversaw a reorganization of about 160 people. And we were, I believe, the first a not-for-profit uh, public sector entity to introduce self-managing teams oh. within the workplace. Um, I've always believed that um, everyone in an organization deserved to know what was going on in the organization and to be able to participate to some extent or another in any of the decision-making that was going on that would affect their daily work and their operations. And I held that through Yale, uh, through UC San Diego, uh, through UC Berkeley, uh, and then, no, I picked it up here with Irvine. I remember you, you were, dis- uh, you were heard, uh, you had, I heard that you had described the Yale review system as kind of a Byzantine uh, or or complicated. Is, is the UC system more, I mean just of line libraries, is it similar or is it more complicated? Uh, I, actually I think the Yale University library, um, library's introduction of a formal performance review process was actually based on UCs. Oh. Uh, the director at the time had come from UC San Diego as director there and had gone to Yale University and introduced a, uh, a version of the UC yeah. library, librarian review model at Yale. Um, I have not been a full supporter of that type of process. Um, I don't believe personally that librarians are faculty and I don't believe that the faculty model should be the model that is applied to performance evaluations. Um, I think it's uh, too rigid. Um, I would like to have more width and breadth in being able to do what I would like to do as, as a leader in rewarding performance. But it does help if there is a, an individual who's not very adept at managing performance, you know, a more standardized 
prescribed process that oh, helps I out. Because I, I remember when I, when I first came, the um, review process uh, ended outside the library. The, um, the university librarian was not the final decision maker. And the, at the EBC, the executive vice chancellor actually signed off on all reviews. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. academic affairs was the uh, repository of the files. And if you were on the ad hoc, you actually went over there and you know looked, read everything in that room over there. And at, at that time, I think it was... Uh, I had argued that it was okay because you had a second eye to look mm-hmm, over, mm-hmm, especially mm-hmm. since uh, a lot of us didn't like what was happening within the library. And so there was at least uh, seemed to be more fair eyes to look over the process and uh, a way to uh, redress uh, wrongs, I suppose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so at that time, it seemed like the right thing to do. Um, but, of course, I, I suppose you always you would argue that that UL should be the final decision maker. I would, but I don't know if I would strongly object if there were to be another set of eyes. I wouldn't want to be excluded, so I would want to okay. have my vote be the final, the highest vote within the library. If it went outside the library, I probably wouldn't object as roundly as others perhaps would. You know, yeah. I, I think that um, when you think of a, an academic school, uh, the dean signs off, but it then goes outside. It goes to CAP. It, you know, oh, so yeah. there is there is more like of an external, yeah, yeah, and those types of things. So, you know, I, I wouldn't make oh, a I big deal right. of it. <clears throat> yeah, I was struck what you said uh, in your town hall meeting that the uh, university doesn't treat the library as an academic unit anymore, but as an administrative or, or just a service unit. Um, why do you think that happened? Or was it just because of, uh, of the budget cuts they thought it was easier to separate it out? Yeah. Um, in 2008-9, I believe, was the first time here within uh, the campus administrative circles the EVC's office elected to define all of the units on campus as either academic units or administrative units. And that was done to facilitate the levying of budget cuts at different levels to the administrative units than to the academic units with the thought being that the academic units were going to be protected and the administrative units would be getting larger budget cuts. And at that time, the EVC's office moved the libraries from being an academic unit to being an administrative unit. They did not, the EVC's office that is, did not allocate as high a budget cut to the libraries as they could have at that time at that time given being an administrative unit i think what caused the problems is that the university librarian is a dean level position is a member of the academic senate right and therefore to define and it's the library's purpose on campus is solely academic from my perspective and to now 
all of a sudden define it as an administrative unit headed by a dean that's a member of the academic senate seems to me to be uh, erroneous and prone to challenge and difficulty down the road, which we saw happen here. I, I think that there has been a significant amount of interference from campus administrative quarters in the affairs of the library to a level that would never have been attempted to a school, a traditional school headed by a traditional dean. Are there consequences in terms of your own position in the sense that you don't get leave or you don't get, what uh, um, do you, you faculty get, um, uh, what do you call their leave, uh, faculty get? For, Administrative uh, leave and, yeah, and their uh, time uh, off. And, or and sabbaticals. Sabbaticals. So right. you, technically you don't get I leave. don't get any of that, no. Yeah. Um, and even but that was the true before that. That's correct, because yeah. I'm a non-teaching, non, you know, I'm not a faculty Even member. Even though you're in the academic senate. That's correct, that's correct. Um, and I'm a non-voting member of the oh. academic senate. Uh, the my uh, position is one of the positions that is still defined as a senior management group position by the regents. Ironically, the deans have been pulled from that classification. Right. Oh. They are not senior management group anymore. They are management and senior professional uh, staff. Um, but. What's more ironic for me right now is I'm not afforded uh, the width and breadth of benefits that perhaps could be given me because I'm an interim appointment oh, and not a full appointment. Yeah. And so um, it seems kind of drastic to not consider a library uh, part of an academic mission on campus or, or serving that function. Um, um, other places, you, you would think, like at Berkeley, you said the faculty, uh, you know, organize against uh, cutbacks. But why do you think there's no opposition? Or is it because people don't know about what Cuts Library has suffered? I don't know for sure because I've not been here, obviously, for a great amount of time. But uh, my sense is there is not a strong an active group of faculty who have power vis-a-vis -vis the operation of the campus, who have objected to what has occurred within the libraries. The Academic Senate Committee at UCI that has responsibility for library oversight is a merged committee of research computing and libraries and for example at UCSD those were three different Seven. committees yeah. and here they are one committee and understandably the primary work of that committee is focused on research yeah. and therefore it has not demonstrated any aggressive um, action against um, decisions that have been viewed as harmful to the libraries. I think um, in times of uh, 
budgetary um, positives when there when there are um, uh, sufficient monies to go around. It's not a big deal. Right. It's when the budget cuts uh, occur that uh, things become difficult, and it takes courage on the part of faculty to stick up for a library above and beyond the needs of their own department. Do you think the faculty were turned off by the Finago, Finac, what do you say, the, the controversy over the Derrida uh, gift and what happened after he died? Uh, I don't think so. I think that? that's a blip. I, I, I don't even think that a large number of faculty were even that caught up in it. I think mm. it was more of an administrative matter, mm. a legal matter, a public relations matter. Um, you know, many, many faculty, as a result of the surveys that were done uh, this last year as part of the Library Task Force, you know, expressed their indignation and surprise that budget cuts were being levied uh, to the library and that the library should not be cut. But for those types of comments to cause an action, there has to be an organized resistance, so to speak. And that doesn't appear to be the case at all here. And I think that's been historically the case at this campus. I think there were strong faculty maybe when critical theory was a bigger thing on campus, but a lot of the people left, mm -hmm. died, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. moved away. Mm -hmm. And so there were, you know, different strongholds in different yeah. departments. Yeah. I think they were more interested in the library, their library committees, you know. But right. now there's almost right. like a right. active at this point. Yeah. So in in terms of your vision, what what was your vision when you got here that you wanted to flatten the structure? I, I know that. But what what else uh, did you see you could do? Uh, um, to do what to what I had thought was most critically important was that um, the UC Irvine Libraries was never going to be an entity that was going to have uh, the width and breadth of resources at its fingertips that that is available at any of the large mm, yeah. premier um, older institutions and therefore um, as I did at San Diego I felt it and feel it critically important that what we need to do here is to do everything possible to remove any and all obstacles um, against getting documents or getting information into the hands of the requester as fast as possible, whether that be interlibrary loan, whatever channel is used to get information. Um, right now, the, the standard, I believe, that's talked about within the UC system is that interlibrary loan takes three weeks. Wow. I find that totally unacceptable. If UCLA is right up the road, and we have to wait for three weeks to get something, and for many things it would be much longer, that's not acceptable. I, mean, I think drive that. Exactly. And I think if, if we're going to be the premier provider of services, information services to faculty, we have to take seriously the fact that we need to be able to get things reliably into yeah. faculty hands. So that for me is the, was the number one goal that I had. Uh, the second goal that I had in, in coming here was that even though faculty and students may, especially students, may not say that they think that information literacy is important, 
Um, I would argue that the librarians as professionals clearly know how important it is and how colleges, universities, I think have failed in many ways to um, educate students and even faculty to an extent um, how to find information in the digital age. There, I think it's a travesty really that there are so few undergrads especially who really understand and know um, the positives and the pitfalls that are associated with digital information. You know, searching strategies. Um, how do you know that you've done a correct search? What other searches do you need to do to get a comprehensive search? How do you, you evaluate timeliness with digital information? How do you evaluate quality? Um, people forget that when the print collections are developed, we have very educated professionals, bibliographers, librarians, who are scanning the world's output and selecting the best to put on the shelves or, or representative of specific use. So there, there's an intermediary there. Mm -hmm. Well, that's gone with the exception that that the web host might be viewed as, an, as a trustworthy host, the National Library of Medicine, for example, if you're looking for medical information. Yeah. But you don't have that anymore. Anybody can put, I mean, I can publish yeah. whatever I want online. Sure. So people who don't appreciate that can go online and do a search and think they've found something and think they've found it all yeah. are you know, grossly incorrect and how do we work in that environment so people can appreciate what they do have? I mean, just the quote strategy, I mean, you know, putting a phrase in quotes, people don't understand a name search. I mean, I can search for Gerald Lowell in quotes, I get one set of information. Yeah. Well, if I put Gerald R. Lowell, I'm going to get a different set of information. Yeah. If I put Jerry Lowell, I get a third set. And if I put Gerald Ray Lowell, I get a fourth set in Gerald Lowell, you know, et cetera, et cetera. People don't think about that. You know, they go yeah. but search a name, and here's their response. They think they've got all the information they're looking for. And it gets, you know, a hundred times more complicated when you're working on interdisciplinary terms, yeah, sure. um, periods of time, you know, things that, are, that become very complicated. Language. Yeah. yeah, and you get 54,000 hits. Yeah. <laughs> and what do you do? And, and, yeah. and the controls that, I mean, we've just seen it with the JCPenney company, yeah. In the commercial okay. arena, all the work that JCPenney did behind the scenes to make their catalogs Stand out. return first on, yeah. on a search. Well, someone's manipulating the information there, and, and if you're not aware of that... Do you think that part of the problem with the low esteem that we're seeing on this campus by the administration, maybe, is that they think that uh, librarians are irrelevant, we don't need librarians because everything is findable by Google? I think that's correct. I think that it may be simplistic, but I think there is the sense that um, everything is digital now. We don't need libraries. Mm -hmm. you know. And as I've said in, in groups before, you know, there are huge and challenging and difficult topics surrounding the digital arena. Right. 
um, from cost ownership issues to preservation issues. You know, what do you do? Um, it's one thing to say that we can preserve the written word through microfilm, through digital archiving of printed pages of files and such. And even that is a challenge yeah. to, to get every printed book. We're never going to get it done because of the econ economic situation. But now you've got data that's changing by the nanosecond, and websites change every day. How are you collecting this information for posterity? What are we collecting for posterity? How do we make sure that something you write yeah. digitally, it's never been in print, how do we make sure that we've got that saved? Do we need to keep it saved? How are we going to save it? What types of medium are we using? Where are we storing it? You know, there are immense issues involved that people are simply ignoring yeah. at this stage because it's online, it's always available, quote-unquote. Um, and we've all seen the situation when you push the button and it says, you've got a dead link, it's not going anywhere, and the thing you really want now all of a sudden has completely disappeared. Where to go? I don't know where it went. And I've hit that yeah. many times in my research where I want to find something and it looks like it's really the thing I want. And then I have a dead link. And the Internet Archive is great, but it doesn't have everything. No, no, no. no. Sometimes it just shows up the first level of the screen, and when yeah. you click on it, it, the second level is gone yeah. because of copyright or whatever. I mean, each, take the recent events in Egypt, those 18 oh, yeah. days. Every minute, if you were looking at an online news service, the day's events were changing. Sure. Now, if you're a political, a political scientist, a social historian... Um, economic historian, whatever, and you want to track what occurred and when, where are you going? And yeah. how? who's saving that? And how is it being saved? And how is it being indexed? And how is it being archived? What, what do you think of this idea that we've been hearing the last few months that there could be uh, bibliographers that select more for more than one campus because of budget cuts or closing of libraries or whatever? that one might be based here but actually end up uh, selecting materials for more than one library. Is that... Uh, um, I think it's a novel idea. It, yeah. it, it, it is a um, step down in quality because I think... You wouldn't um, know the environment, right? Right, exactly. you're just exactly. looking at the like, catalog. Or I'm, I'm always amazed and we forget sometimes that um, we are all human beings with our distinct perspectives and interests and in your area take your area if we yeah. take 10 of you and put a, a 10 different individuals who all uh, are intrigued with the topics you're intrigued with and you are all selecting at 10 different campuses it is guaranteed that you are going to select 10 different sets of yeah. things you're not going to select the same thing well by selecting those different things we contribute to the richness of yeah. our width and breadth of collections. So if one person is going to select for 10 campuses in generic level types of topics, we lose the richness that's afforded by multiple selectors building a collection. Now, if budget cuts require that or lack of available expertise, yeah. you know, that's another matter. But then I would much rather say, okay, buy more materials and have one copy for the 10 campuses and share it 
and get the width and breadth through that manner rather than buying the same title for 10 copies or something like that. Now, that's obviously we have to make a difference. We have to distinguish between core types of titles and um, highly specific and highly uh, uh, detailed to one subset of a subject discipline or something. But the problem is with uh, digital books, uh, e-books, you almost have to buy 10 copies to be able to share that. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and that goes back to this ownership. That, uh, yeah, who owns the data and how? Business model for yeah. vendors. Exactly. Uh, they want to make as much money as possible. And that's not getting any better. I mean, that's, that's becoming, I think, increasingly more complicated, even as we look at our ability as a university system of 10 libraries to negotiate yeah. buying contracts for electronic materials. You know, it's hard. It's very difficult because we are a captive audience yet, and until we break the um, the ownership model that currently exists for scholarly publication, we will end up not being able to afford to buy the items that we helped produce through our right. academic work. So it's a counter trend, right? I mean, libraries are involved in scholarly communication, advocating putting... Uh, faculty books, uh, writings online for free in repositories like the California, the CDL one, mm-hmm. but um, the vendors just want to hang on to it and right. be the charge. Right, right. It's, it's an ownership uh, model rather than a for free model. I mean, it's probably like the, the Carnegie Library construct of the 1800s early 1900s where you want an informed citizenry and therefore you're going to provide materials to those individuals who can't afford them and make those materials available for free because of the public benefit and now we've gone to a a model where information is now owned and controlled through licensing as you mentioned earlier and that is even affecting the public libraries now. You know, we, right. the public libraries um, can't afford even the amount of access that we have here yeah, yeah. to databases and such. And we and we lament the fact that we don't have access to everything. Well, the public library, okay. yeah. at least luckily, people can walk into our library as a citizen and still get access to right. titles. But they, even that could be stopped by a publisher if they so chose. So the common good, you know, or the common, the commons, I guess, the idea of uh, information as, as available in the, in the commons is, is kind of a, a battle, I guess. You have to mm-hmm. keep fighting for it. Exactly, exactly. I think, um, now if I were a publisher, <laughs> yeah. I would probably act differently in answering your question, but, but uh, and I suppose if, if I'm the publisher and I have invested all of the research and and making this information available online, I want to get a return. Uh, But there are ways, there are different ways to price material and price information so that a publisher can still make his or her fair share without scalping the user, and especially the user who was the one that produced the item in the first place. How about this... uh um, idea that the university is going to um, move the UC Press to another campus, is that true? Uh, 
Um, I think right now the discussions that are occurring at the Office of the President are such that there is a significant amount of analytical work going on and a desire to not have the Office of the President of the University of California have under its jurisdiction academic programs. It wants the programs to be out in the campuses. And so what I think is happening right now is this aggressive review of what is housed centrally and what instead should be spread out. Is that because they want to be able to say to the legislature that we've cut our budget? <laughs> um, I, I think yes, but there's probably also part of it that says they're not a campus. You know, they are really not in touch with campus issues, oh. and therefore they would probably say um, these programs are much closer to the consumer if we put them at a campus. But it's money. Right. From my perspective, the bottom line is it's money. We're so if they move, uh, similarly, they want to move uh, California Digital Library, uh, CDL, to, uh, to a campus, I suppose. And would the campus end up paying for it, or would all the campuses pay for it, or how, and how would that um, It's not clear. I think one thing that I could probably guarantee for sure is OP is not considering sending all the money it pays right now oh, for right. CDL to that campus. I think that's a deal. It's, uh, there's going to be a cut. And no, I think it would be a, a it would be an example where the, the specific campus isn't expected to pay the salaries of the right, that 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 it really would be an an independent entity that's on its own tub, so to speak, but that its yeah. administrative support structures would go through that specific campus, whether it be payroll function, yeah. business office function. Yeah. personnel functions, space, you know, that type of thing. It would be on a campus, but but controlled by the 10 campuses. It seems that, uh, you know, when I first came, there was this, still this California plan that said that we wanted to open up uh, higher education to the people in California. Mm -hmm. And now they're talking about admitting more foreign students who pay over 30, 32000 or more mm -hmm. a year to come mm -hmm. here. It's what happened to that plan, and it's sad. I think yeah. it's very sad. I think you know the California um, higher education system, um, part of the state and the university and the state university community colleges, was called you know the master plan. The California's master plan, yeah, master plan. Yeah, yeah. and it was an extraordinarily um, positive uh, project. It was admired by many. Um, and it outlined how the state's resources and facilities were going to be provided to the citizenry at large. So you had the top X percent of students would be at the university, the next chunk would be at the state colleges, and the third chunk at the community colleges, and there would be the ability to move through those structures uh, to enable the state to educate as many as yeah. possible. And with the budget cuts that began to occur, what, the last five years, um, it's now the case that the uh, master plan is dead. There is no master plan, and there never will be a master plan. It's gone. You know, there is, the state has totally backed away 
from attempting to maintain that plan. Uh, the funding scenarios for the state are so disastrous that there is there's just been a knee-jerk reaction to throw the whole thing out. There certainly could have been yeah. other ways to mediate that, to keep the plan in place, but have the payment structures differ. But it's all gone now. And as a result, um, and given the way the campuses are financed, and they're on their own tub, um, if you get a full-paying student campus ends up with more money than if they're bringing in a student who needs financial aid and who can't pay fully. And so you see these new initiatives now trying to figure out how do we get full-paying students, whether they be non-residents from the United States or whether they be international students where there is an ability to pay, where there is an ability to pay a full tuition. How about the impact on the library? Uh, I, I know that in the past, every time um, the campus grew, we got more students, we got a certain amount of the money added to our budget. Is that still happening? No. Um, Irvine is flat. Irvine right now is really... Um, it's not a growth campus. It's not a growth campus. We are st I mean, we've grown, but we're growing per the commitments that we've made oh, and that we've been paid for. Um, there are... Some campuses that are ignoring those growth um, commitments and are enrolling more students than they are getting state money for. Mm -hmm. And that's causing difficulty for the University of California at the present time. Because if we are telling the legislature that we don't have money to educate students and then we have a campus that's over-enrolling and paying for their students through different income streams, we defeat our argument. Is that, that can afford. Are those the big, bigger universities? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So th there's no other revenue stream that could increase that? Well, the revenue streams could be increased like we've done in the professional schools where the oh, grades okay. tuition and individual campuses have the ability to establish their own uh, fee structures on professional schools. So you could extend that concept if you yeah. wanted to, and it may very well be that that might be a fallout as the state continues to decline yeah. in paying its share of higher education. Um, how do you increase morale in a place then? Uh, I mean, I've been here 25 years, and I've seen it go up and down. <laughs> and I think... Uh, a lot of it depends on the vision and the leadership of the senior uh, people here, including the university librarian, maybe or maybe mainly the university librarian. Mm -hmm. And it, it's important for that person to set an example and to have open door and whatever you know policy. Um, how how do, how do you see yourself uh, as contributing to? What, what do you would you suggest as you're leaving um, that we could? be happier, mm -hmm. given all these uh, stresses. On yeah. um, first of all, I, I've always strongly believed that um, I want to create a work environment in which I would want to work. Mm. And I want to be involved with the operation in which I find myself. 
I want to be kept informed about what's going on. I want to be treated with respect. I want to be listened to. I want to understand how decisions are made. I want to be provided the opportunity to contribute to the operation in meaningful ways. I want to be thanked when I've done good work. Um, I think we see very little of that. Yeah, and I think that's that's for me. Yeah, exactly. And that and that's what I've carried with me throughout my career. I, I think, in a part, it may be because you know, I'm I was born and raised in a. Um, lower class, blue collar family. Neither my mother nor my father went to college, or graduated from college. Nebraska? The South Dakota. South Dakota, yeah. And I worked starting as a student worker in the library. I became a clerical worker. I was a paraprofessional. I worked in all those positions. And I think I have a, a special, I mean it sounds crazy, but a special place in my heart for the little person. And I think the little person deserves to be treated as as much important as the big person, and we don't find that at all on on campuses. You know, that we have a we're almost like a feudal environment here. We have faculty, and we have staff, and there is a huge abyss between those two cultures. And when the going gets rough, it's the staff that suffer, and not the faculty. Is it because uh, lack of uh, PhD or something that they don't respect us? Um, I think it's a recognition that staff can come and go. Ah, I, see. I think the faculty um, are a, a, a more important entity from the perspective of an administrator running a place. Um, that may be true, but it doesn't mean that staff should be bearing the brunt. Faculty get their merit increases, faculty salaries, we've attempted to keep those at par with the market. Nothing's been done like that with staff. You know, we we have not gotten, I mean, when's the last time staff have gotten a merit increase? Oh, cost you know, of living. A cost of living increase. Yeah, it doesn't exist. And I don't think that's right. Now, that's not to condemn faculty, because there are many faculty who are very compassionate about sure. the staff environments. But there are many faculty who could care less. All they want is to make sure that their benefits that and such are met. Um, and there's very little respect on the part of uh, some faculty for staff. We are just staff. And you see that in the old days, you would even see that within the library, between the librarians and the clerical staff. I don't feel that so much here at all. But when I was at Yale, that certainly was assessed. The librarian was a class in and of itself, and it was not going to be having to work equally with a clerical worker. There was an AUL before uh, who wanted the librarians to be distinguished from the staff uh, by wearing badges. Oh, really? Yeah. Then oh. we had to actually wear something if you were working on the front desk somewhere uh, to oh, wow. make sure they knew who you were. But then some people would say, oh, we don't want to put our names and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, when they yeah. were stalked or whatever. And so it actually never happened. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Maybe they tried it for a bit. But yeah, right. Succeed. Amazing. Yeah. And I think he also recommended uh, 
not letting the public in. Oh, really? It'd be like, I think Berkeley does that for some libraries. Well, actually, there are quite a few libraries now that will uh, let the public into certain areas, yeah. but not all areas, and because arguing the fact that they're not a public library. You know, we have public libraries in the state, and the citizenry should be going to the public library, and the public libraries have interlibrary loan, and, and, and we're not being paid to run public libraries. So there, there is, I think, some validity to the argument, but one doesn't have to get draconian in, in how one enforces that. I used to go to a NYU library and tell them I was using the government depository or the labor collection, which is upstairs, and by that, by rule, that was allowed. That was allowed that happened, right. right. So you could get in the building, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Using that. Uh, so we, put, we position the government depository <laughs> yeah. collection somewhere special, right? Yeah. yeah. But, um, I mean, you, you're a pioneer in, in being so open about your own relationship and talking about it. Um, every time I, I hear you give a public talk, you, you talk about your partner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, when did you start that? Is that a... um, I have been out of the closet, so to speak, at work since the start of my uh, working career. Mm-hmm. Um, I was uh, I came out when I was uh, in my early twenties. I was a graduate student at the time at the University of Washington. Um, I have. Uh, always believed uh, that I deserved every right anyone else did and that my being um, a gay man uh, had nothing to do with my abilities to work and in fact I thought it brought positive contributions and I expected to be treated uh, fairly and appropriately so I have always from day one whenever I have interviewed at the beginning, I was rather cagey. I would, uh, if I was invited to apply for a position and I was selected to interview, I would use phrases like, um, my partner will be coming. And then I would wait and see how that entity, what assumptions that entity would make about the gender of my partner. Did they assume that I met wife, that I met a female? Were they careful and not to make assumptions and that was a big barometric test for me Uh, when I interviewed I made it very clear that I was a gay man and I would watch carefully about the reactions and then um, I have always been open and I have found uh, that especially in the earlier years uh, my willingness to be open, I think, showed and demonstrated um, a, uh, a spirit of honesty to staff. I think people could tr- felt they could trust me. I was being very open about who I was as an individual. I think people could deduce that I would treat people more fairly, given that I was a member of a uh, persecuted minority. Um, and I didn't. And I wanted to be a role model. I think it was very, very clear, especially early on, there were no role models. You know, there were no um, openly out, successful uh, gays or lesbians that people could 
see, and I wanted to be that. And um, Mitchell and I, I mean, we've had our finances together from day one. Um, we've gone to the bank and we had our names, we, we want our names on a checking yeah. account. Um, How long have you been together? 29 years. Oh, yeah. Wow. 30 years in August. Wow. Um, yeah, so very long time. So we, I mean, it's been uh, incredibly fascinating for me. You know, I was involved with uh, the University of California with the efforts on the part of uh, deeply dedicated individuals across the campuses to get domestic partner benefits passed. Um, at that time, I think I was the most senior administrator who was out. Was that in San Diego? Yes, who um, testified in front of the regents when they were considering domestic partner benefits. Um, I always joked with the uh, the activists at UCSD, um, and I certainly couldn't dedicate the width and breadth of hours that others could do, but I told them I was there for them whenever they needed me, that they just had to dust me off and wheel me out, and <laughs> I would do what needed to be done. And, and I was very open, and we, um, I remember the first several years when UCSD marched in Gay Pride, there were probably six of us. Huh. And my partner and I always had carried the, yeah. the banner. And then it ended up continuing to expand, and now the Chancellor rides in the Gay Pride Parade. You know, it, it's been really uh, fun to see that, and I have been uh, deeply admiring of the individuals who have yeah. uh, fought so hard uh, to get what we deserve. Have you ever been um, rejected for a job because of that? Yes. Um, I can't pinpoint it directly, but I was when I was at Yale, I was interviewing for directorship positions, and I was a finalist. I won't name the institution. I was a finalist, and I was the number one choice of the faculty. I was the number one choice of the staff. I was the number one choice of the search committee. Um, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I went uh, my final visit and met the president of the university, and I was treated like scum. And he was vicious in his attacks. Um, I was dumbfounded because usually a president of a university is going to want to put a positive face on the university, and that did not happen. And I was instead ground down to nothing and was not offered the position. How did they do that? How did he do that? Um, challenged words in my cover letter, challenged things I had said. How did I think I could do this? Why was I doing this? Why was I doing that? It was a very short discussion and I can only deduce that you know I was openly gay. It was uh, uh, in an area of the country that perhaps is not as, as open as, it, as other areas of the country. Was it private school? Yes. And I was not offered the position. And, you know, and the only, only thing I can chalk that up to was bigotry and prejudice. Um, I have been um, subject to prejudice at other places I've worked, but that was, but, and that was, and those times were very open. I could clearly know what was going on, but this was the only time where I really couldn't pinpoint it exactly. So uh, why did you want to uh, retire in uh, Europe? 
Um, my partner and I um, actually uh, went to Amsterdam when the first George Bush was elected. We were fearful of what was going on in the country. We were disgusted with what was going on in the country, and we had actually gone as far as contacting uh, legal assistance to determine whether or not we could go. We went to Amsterdam. It rained and rained and rained and rained and rained, and we said we didn't like the weather very much, but if we had to, we could go. Uh, we stayed. But this last year um, has been extremely difficult for us to, to tolerate. Um, I'm sick of, of the political landscape in this country. Mm -hmm. I am sick of the um, discrimination that is viewed as acceptable in certain quarters toward gays, lesbians, and transgender, bisexual folk, questioning folk. And I'm tired of listening to an uninformed citizenry claim that this is the best country in the world and the best this and the best that and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, when in fact it's quite not the case. And, uh, and so it's kind of like living when you're younger, when you live in transition neighborhoods. I remember, you know, we both were living in Boston and I think as we would pay dues, so to speak, to society by living in a transition neighborhood. You do your time, so to speak, to help the greater good. And then after a while, you get tired of carrying um, money in your pocket in case your mug money, we called it. We used to always carry some bills in our front pocket so we would have money to give if we were mugged. You kind of say, okay, enough's enough. And I think I've reached, we've reached that stage of our lives where um, we're not aggressive um, fighters for a cause. You know, I admire you because I, th I see in you someone who's really been devoted to your principles and, and continue to be. And, I'm at the stage now where I, I, I just want to be able to relax. You know, I'm tired. I don't want to relax. <laughs> yeah, I'm tired of fighting the fight, and I'm so appalled that we have individuals who are touted as presidential material that it just astounds me. It astounds me the, the growth of the Fox networks, the, the conservative commentators, the vile and evil tones that are espoused. You know, the teenage suicides of gay people, you know, shouldn't be any surprise to people given what's going on here. And uh, therefore, we uh, decided probably about a year ago, we just started to talk about leaving. Um, it's ironic for me because obviously all of us are immigrants in one way or another. I, I come from, uh, part of my family has been here since the 1600s. I have mm. relatives who were great, you know, grandparents who were on the Mayflower signed the Mayflower Compact, who were very early uh, colonialists. And then I have immigrants who came in the early 1900s uh, from Germany, from Norway, to settle. And it amazes me, they all came for opportunity, and I'm saying, screw it, I'm going to leave now. I've, I've had it with this country. And, and uh, Yeah, I, I talk a lot with people from China, for instance, on the chat, and on uh, MSN or whatever, and they are amazed that there's, uh, you know, that California voted against gay marriage. They thought you know, America is so liberated. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I mean, they have no idea. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's ironic. You know, my partner and I, um, as we apply for our residency visas for Spain, um, need to show that we're a couple. 
and we are registered domestic partners, have been for a long time. But um, we thought it might be good to have a marriage certificate. So we never, we came from that era of time in the 70s when the last thing a gay couple would want to ever be close to being married or accepting I still believe yes and living together. Yeah, and so we traveled to Iowa. We got married in October in, of all places, Iowa. I leave this bastion of liberaldom, California, and I go to Iowa to get married, which is a hoot to me. I think it's absolutely the most crazy thing ever. Iowa City? We got married in Sioux City, Iowa. Sioux City, wow. Yeah. Oh, it's just south of where I was born and raised in South Dakota. Um, and and t to listen to all the idiocy that surrounds marriage these days. I mean, the latest thing is you know, these debates at state level that by affording gay people to marry, it's going to lead to individuals wanting to marry their um, robot, their computer, the dog, you know, the dog <laughs> and, you know, and how absolutely insulting those types of things are. So we're going to Spain, which of course has had gay marriage since 2005. It's astounding. This is a country that has lived through a vicious right-wing conservative dictatorship and has faced incredible challenges. Yeah, there are problems there as well, but but um, I'm not saying that it's Nirvana any place, but I don't see American flags or Spanish flags flying from every car that goes down the street. I don't see religious stickers on bumpers about Jesus, and I don't see political stickers on bumpers about I'm more conservative than you are, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, it's refreshing to not have to face that crap. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 Exactly. <laughs> Which, yeah, it, it really is the case. I, 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 we just have really had it. And I think even enlightened people who are not a member of a minority don't understand um, yeah. you know, what it's like every day to yeah. listen to, to people talk about you right. in the third person sure. and what you don't deserve because of X, Y, or Z. And it, it, you know, I'm a fairly strong-skinned individual, yeah. and I get depressed and to think yeah. about an 18-year-old who's struggling to find his or her way in this world and having to deal with all this crap. Yeah. You know, it's, it's frighteningly scary, and it's very sad, I think. Um, well, thank you very much. You're very welcome. I've enjoyed visiting hour. with you. Yes, Great. and enjoy the Wish you all the best. Thanks so much, Dan. Uh, so that was our interview with uh, Jerry Lowe, who today uh, retired from UC system and is going to Spain to escape the rhetoric uh, that is so nasty in this country. This is Dan Zhang with Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.